Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Today, we have a classic, complex Coach Connor special. We ask a question not many other physiologists are asking. Is an amateur's zone two ride, and we're talking about a five zone model here, is an amateur's zone two ride as physiologically taxing as a pro's zone two ride? And to put that another way, if a pro and an amateur are doing a zone two ride, and for the pro, let's assume that means riding at 300 watts, and for the amateur, that means 150 watts, even though it feels the same, is it actually the same? When you look at the extremes, the training effect can be quite dramatic. For a pro, 300 watts might be a long base miles type ride. For the amateur, 300 watts could possibly be maintained for a five minute effort and nothing more. The efforts are fundamentally different given the athlete. So why is this important? Well, we wouldn't tackle this question if we didn't think it had repercussions for your training and for your specific situation. The answer is actually multifaceted. Most significantly, it's important because it could mean that as you get fitter, your training must change. For example, if a pro and an amateur get different training adaptations from a four-hour zone two ride because of the vastly different power they can generate, then it's likely they need to use those rides very differently. We'll discuss what this means in much more detail with today's main guest, Dr. Inigo San Milan, the lead physiologist for the UAE Emirates World Tour team, a researcher at the Anschutz Medical Center in Colorado, and the former director of the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center. One thing to note in this time of stay-at-home orders, Dr. San Milan was fresh off being quarantined at the UAE tour in the Middle East. We connected with him via Zoom, so apologies for any audio quality loss as the rest of the world also uses Zoom. Today, we'll also hear from physiologists Dr. Steven Seiler and Jared Berg, exert creator Armando Mastracci, and Mitchelton Scott's Brent Bookwalter. All that and much more today on Fast Talk. Now let's make you fast. I appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us today about this this topic, Dr. San Milan. Uh, it's one that I know you and Trevor have talked about in the past. It's one that Trevor has been uh, it's been on his mind for literally years. Thank you for for being with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Been way too long since we've had you on the show. We had you on a bunch of times in the in the early days when you were. Uh, spending more time in Colorado, and we've always really enjoyed hearing your, your perspectives and your insights. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's a good, 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 uh, good to be back. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while. <laughs> and I heard you guys are growing, so yeah, congratulations. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. This is an episode I have been excited to do with you for a while because we've had this conversation offline multiple times. It's a question that I will admit I've written an article about it. We've talked about it. I'm still don't. I, I'm still not certain. I I have an answer to this that I'm I'm fully comfortable with. So I uh, I'm going to start by saying right out we're we're going to probably have a really interesting conversation for the next hour hour and a half, but it, it's probably going to be a little contradictory. We're probably going to go back and forth. Let's talk about a five zone model right now, where when people talk about a zone two ride, they're talking about riding right around that aerobic threshold or VT one. For a pro and an amateur rider, 
that's the same relative percent uh, of their max or their, their threshold, depending on how you calculate your zones. But for an amateur, they might be riding at 180 watts. For a top pro, they can be riding upwards of 290, 300 watts. So even though it's the same relative percentage, that's a lot more power for the pro. That's a lot more metabolic flux. You still have to produce that energy somehow. So the question for this whole episode is, is it the same for both? Is it the same training adaptation? Is it the same effect? Or because of that big difference in the power and the metabolic flux, does it have a different impact on, on both of them? So that's, that's the question we want to ask. And I wrote an article about this back in 2018. And in the article, I used an analogy. And I just want to give that analogy before we dive into it. So I compared it to a car. And the idea here is, if you're talking about engines, it's kind of like the pro has a jet engine where the amateur has a, a little four-cylinder engine. Um, so both engines working at 50% at of their max, the, that pro engine, that jet engine, is going to be using a lot more fuel, even though it's, it's still only working at 50%. But there's more to it than just the engine. There's also what is the body that the engine is in. Is it in a Volkswagen or is it in a Ferrari? And one of the points I tried to make in the article is you put a jet engine in a... a old Volkswagen's body and run it at even 20%, you're probably going to destroy that car. So we, we have to look at all these factors. So that's the analogy, but let's kind of dive into this. And I guess the first question, the, is the demand different on the engine for the pro versus the amateur? Is the oxygen consumption the same or is it different? I would look more like at the metabolic level. Right? So the higher the metabolic stress, uh, yeah, the more oxygen you're also going to need in many instances. So that's one of the reasons why we see higher VO2 max and higher oxygen consumption. But not necessarily could be the case uh, as it is a lot about metabolic efficiency. So um, two people can be at the same metabolic point, if you will, or metabolic stress. Uh, and one is 180 watts, as you pointed out earlier, and the other one is 320 watts. Um, that's something that we see in the world-class athletes. You know, some of the, our, our best athletes at the team, uh, UAE, 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 they can do five hours on the bike at 300 watts, whereas I can do that at only <laughs> at 150 watts, for example, at most, you know. They use more oxygen. They, uh, they, they, they oxidize more fat. They oxidize more carbohydrates. But they're very uh, um, efficient, metabolically speaking. So I uh, actually dug out a, a really interesting study just, just a few days ago. This is one from 2009 in the European Journal of Applied Physiology. It was an interesting design where they took endurance athletes and compared them to sedentary people and set them on, up on a device where they could really analyze what's going on with the quads and had them exercise the quads in a way that they completely isolated that muscle. So they were just using that muscle to see what the, the effects were. And one of the conclusions, which wasn't what they expected of the study, was that the oxygen consumption 
So they, they had them working at about the same wattage. And this is, again, trained endurance athletes versus sedentary individuals. And they actually found that the oxygen consumption and the energy cost when they're working at the same wattage was the same, that the, the elite athletes actually weren't more efficient. That's also been shown in a few other studies. And at the end of the day, when you're, you're, you're talking about power, power is, is work over time. Work is, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of energy to do a certain amount of work. You know, to, to a degree, you have to say energy is energy. It can't be created or destroyed. So it's going to take more, more energy. It's going to take more uh, oxygen, whether you're a pro or an amateur, to do 300 watts than 180 watts, correct? Yeah, exactly. For, for, for the amateur, 180 watts, or for the amateur, for the weekend warrior, warrior right? Uh, um, yeah, it, it, it requires a lot of energy and a lot of effort, or the same energy and the same effort as it could be for a world-class athlete, for example. Because uh, 180 watts is as tasking, metabolically speaking, for the amateur or the weekend warrior as it is 300 watts for the elite athlete. If it requires the same amount of energy, if the, the oxygen consumption is the same, then what's, what's the difference between the, the pro and the amateur? Is there any? The one thing is that uh, oxygen consumption per se is not a, a, an important discriminator. Like, uh, uh, you know, two people, and this is something that I, I personally have, have observed this for 25 years almost, that you can have two people pedaling at the same oxygen consumption and uh, and they might have the same view two max at the same time, and uh, but metabolically speaking, at the cellular level, they are completely different. We have a study, in fact, uh, I showed it uh, two years ago at the American College of Sports Medicine annual meeting, and we need to finalize it to publish it, where we, we clearly see that there's little correlation. Uh, it's um, poor to modest at best between oxygen consumption and different parameters of metabolic stress. And this is what uh, we're focusing on at the uh, metabolic level, at the cellular level. So um, what I mean by this is like in, in this study, for example, we don't see that how much uh, pyruvate they, they are oxidizing, which is the uh, carbohydrate source, or how much lactate or how are producing or, or inoxidizing, and how much of fat and, and, and also uh, proteins or amino acids are oxidizing, right? So this is what we see tremendous amount of differences in, uh, in, in, in two populations. We are now, since we last spoke, or I was last in that podcast and I left the center in Boulder and working at the University of Colorado, the medical campus and at the new Hebel Center and, and in Colorado Springs that we're opening. So I've been doing a lot of research, uh, both uh, with a new technique that we call it, what is called metabolomics, which with one blood sample we can get to analyze up to 2,000 parameters at the metabolic level, metabolites. And also, and we have a study now under review, hopefully it will be published soon. And also, we're also doing muscle biopsies. So what we're doing in, across different groups from, from um, sedentary individuals or people who also have to diabetes, with people with, uh, who are weekend warriors, with people who are morally active, uh, amateurs, as well as elite athletes, and uh, we are seeing within those skeletal muscle biopsies, we're looking at mitochondrial function, substrate utilization, metabolomics, uh, proteomics, 
And so far, the differences are incredible or, or among all the groups, right? At the oxygen level, consumption, they, they, you know, might not be much of a difference between one group of the same category, that is the uh, elite athletes or the amateur athletes. But at the metabolic level, at the cellular level, and this is what one of the reasons that we're doing the study, we're seeing important differences. Can you give us an example of one of those major differences at the metabolic level? Yeah. So, for example, we see that yeah, elite athletes, they can oxidize uh, fatty acids very well, significantly better than those ones who are amateurs. Even within the same group, we see there's uh, differences in uh, fatty acid oxidation. Within, uh, And I'm talking a world, so world-class athletes even. Okay? Uh, we also see there's uh, significant differences in pyruvate oxidation. Pyruvate is the, the, the end of the glycolysis, and that's what is then converted into acetyl-CoA, and in, in the mitochondria, it uh, enters that Krebs cycle to produce energy, ATP. So we're seeing significant differences in pyruvate oxidation or utilization between an amateur athlete and, and an elite athlete, for example. And also, we're seeing important differences in in amino acid of oxidation, glutamine especially, which is, is one of the most important amino acids that we have uh, for because it enters the Krebs cycle directly. And uh, yeah, glutamine utilization in, in an elite athlete is much higher than what it is in an amateur athlete. Uh, we're also seeing that within the same group of elite athletes, and this is what we're seeing with metabolomics, uh, we see that the top of the world compared to the average pro world tour um, cyclist, it's, it's, it's significant, it's huge as well, could be twice. So this is what uh, we're entering a new era where, where, where we don't look at oxygen consumption anymore, we look more at, at mitochondrial function, at substrate utilization. I started doing all these fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates 15 years ago. And I, you know, with my colleague, Dr. George Brooks from Berkeley, we developed this method to indirectly look at mitochondrial function and metabolic flexibility in athletes that we published, I believe it's now two years ago or, or three. And, um, but now we're looking directly into the mitochondria, I mean, in, with muscle biopsies at the cellular level with all kinds of new technologies that we have, including um, uh, metabolomics, which is a, uh, it's, it's a game changer in, in, in looking at, you know, metabolic responses to exercise. I have known Dr. Sam Milan for a long time and have learned a ton from him about the physiology of cyclists and how to train. But we couldn't address a question this important without also hearing from another physiologist who has taught me a lot over the years. So let's check in with Dr. Steven Seiler and hear what he has to say about endurance training in elite versus amateur athletes. You take, for example, what, what people call zone two, or I prefer to call it training at uh, just below that two uh, millimoles. Um, if you have an, an amateur versus a, a high-level professional cyclist, for the amateur, that might be training at 160 watts. For a pro, that can be training close to 300 watts. So my, my question for you is, are they, is that producing the same physiological gains or is there such a bigger metabolic flux in the pro that they're actually seeing benefits that the, the amateur rider wouldn't? 
Uh, yeah, you, you kind of stole my thunder there because I've used that term metabolic flux. And, and, I, and I do sometimes feel like that, you know, one of the first responses to training is you do get an increase in VO2 max. You do get an increase in that upper limit. So if you express training intensity as a percentage of max and max goes up considerably in the first months or a year of training, then obviously that impacts that there is a change in what's sustainable metabolic flux for for the athlete and i do think that's part of the reason why uh an elite athlete can train at 65 percent of vo2 max and and benefit because 65 percent of five or six liters a minute is still a lot it's still a, a big work capacity it may uh, if we take totally untrained people again, then probably I would say, let's just get you going. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to run for two hours, you know, because uh, in the in the early phase. So totally untrained, I think you can pretty much do whatever you want with them and they're going to get better. And maybe uh, some more high intensity is going to be a way for them to kind of uh, get up to speed. Uh, but as soon as you have been training probably six months, then I'm going to start saying, all right, now let's look at how you train. Let's look more carefully at how you train. Great. And and so far, with even with recreational athletes that are running 30 miles a week or, or training five hours a week, we've seen that this polarized approach helps. It helps them. Uh, if nothing else, it helps them to understand the idea of easy hard that they get more variation in their training intensity instead of letting every workout be kind of 45 minute red line so so i do believe our data suggests that at least down to recreational five hour a week or 30 you know 20 30 mile a week guys or women there is still a benefit to be made from looking carefully at training intensity distribution all right, let's get back to the show. What is the difference that that 300 watts, even though it's the same relative intensity, what is the difference for the, the pro versus the, the amateur when one is up close to 300 watts, one's at, at 180 watts? What's the different effects on their engine? You need to produce a lot more ATP, right, to, to run that engine. Right, at that speed or at that power output. Um, and for that, you need to mobilize different metabolic sources. So the elite athlete is extremely good at oxidizing carbohydrates and even fatty acids at these intensities, whereas the amateur athlete at those intensities um, of 300 watts, they, they're, not, they're, they're, they're not oxidizing fat at all, and everything is uh, glycolytic, and therefore they produce a lot of lactate. Uh, so for, for those people that the same metabolic uh, state, it, it, it would be more at 180 watts, for example, as we keep referring to the 180 watts, for example, right? That's where they would be at the same metabolic level. But if you want to go from 180 watts to 300 watts, you're going to have to um, mobilize um, a lot more energy. Or you're going to have to produce, uh, I mean, to oxidize a lot, a lot more pyruvate for energy, and you're going to produce a lot more lactate but you need to oxidize that lactate. And this is the capacity, and everything happens in the mitochondria. And uh, this is why these, these elite athletes have an amazing mitochondrial function, which can oxidize the pyruvate, and they can oxidize also the, 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 the fatty acids, and also produces 
they produce largest amount of lactate as a result of uh, pyruvate oxidation, but they oxidize lactate very well within the mitochondria, mainly, as well as in adjacent mitochondria and in also as low twitch muscle fibers. So I, I get with the amateurs that if they go up to 300 watts, it's very different. But, but I guess the, the question here is if they're both in their zone two, if they're both riding at aerobic threshold, is it the same thing? Yeah, I would say so. Metabolically speaking, I would say it, it is the same metabolic stress or the same metabolic situation. Even though with the pro, we're, we're looking at a situation where they are requiring a lot more energy. They're, they're requiring a, a higher oxygen consumption to produce their higher wattage. Well, but this is what I, I would like to, in, in my opinion, I, I don't look at oxygen consumption anymore. I, I look more about the metabolic level. I think we, we've been for, for decades talking about oxygen. Um, and from at least what we're seeing with muscle biopsies, we're correlating with uh, looking at genomics, metabolomics, proteomics, we're looking at transcriptomics, we're looking also at even exosomes, um, and we, we, we're not at, you know, like opening new areas where we're looking specifically at a very cellular level, and, and we already see that there's little correlation with oxygen consumption within the same group. So. I, 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 that's what I, I, I would not like to get stuck in the oxygen consumption, right? I will, I will, I think it's more about that. What happens at the cellular level, right? Uh, so those athletes, they, they, they have a much higher capacity to mobilize fuels, whether it's uh, from carbohydrate source, whether it's from fatty acid source, or whether it is from a uh, um, lipid, from, uh, I mean, from amino, uh, amino acids, right? Or fatty acids. So, and, and for that, the mitochondria, is, it, it's, it's key for that. So um, to, at 300 watts, obviously, the, the muscle contraction force, it's much higher uh, than what it is at 180 watts. So you, you require more, more substrate, right? Um, and, uh, and those substrates are more, more, more carbohydrate oxidation you need. You need more, more, more fatty acids, and you need also more um, amino acids as well to produce ATP. Because at the end of the day, metabolic stress is about ATP uh, synthesis rate as well. Um, but, you know, an, an, an athlete who doesn't have the same capabilities can only do that at 180 watts, for example. If that athlete wanted, so there would be a, a, at, a, at a similar uh, homeostasis, if you will, level, but with lower Fat oxidation, lower carbohydrate oxidation, and lower amino acid oxidation, and that's that's the capacity that the well-trained athlete has. I know it's complicated, but um, it is an interesting question. That, that's very complicated. But going back to what you were saying about the the substrates, they're both in their their zone two. The pro to generate that three hundred watts compared to the one hundred and eighty watts from the the amateur that pro is going to be burning a lot more calories per minute. How are they doing that? Are they still, are both going to be relying equally on, on fat versus carbohydrates, or are you going to see a different reliance? Yeah, in total number, again, the, the elite athlete has a much higher capacity to burn or, or, or oxidize carbohydrates or fatty acids or amino acids. Therefore, they can't afford to produce or synthesize so much energy, ATP, that is needed to produce 400, 300 watts. However, they, the amateur athlete, 
can, can, cannot get there, doesn't have enough mitochondrial function, doesn't have enough glycolytic capacity, doesn't have enough lactic clearance capacity, and, and fat oxidation. So therefore, uh, can only do at a, at a maybe, if you will, a percentage of the metabolic stress, the maximum metabolic stress, can only do 180 watts. Uh, and we see that in, that in the laboratory that at that level, for example, the, the, the elite athlete is burning or oxidizing 0, 0. 0.7 grams per minute of, of fatty acid. And at the same level, the, the, the amateur or moderately active athlete can only do 0. 0.3. So we're talking about more than twice. And this is what we're seeing in, in, in with muscle biopsies well uh, we in the muscle biopsy what we do is like we take a chunk of muscle and, and we inject directly into that muscle biopsy different substrates we look at pyruvate we look at which is the representative of uh, carbohydrates we also look at lactate which is the, also the end product of glycolysis and and and, uh, and, uh, and and the main carbohydrate source as well and we also inject fatty acids and inject amino acids in this case it's glutamine and that, that we see how they utilize it compared to the uh, you know, in between groups. So we see that they have a much higher capacity to utilize um, all substrates. So I'll say going back to the to the analogy of the car, right? If, if a Ferrari, for example, yeah, can can go like at let's say at uh, 150 miles an hour, uh, and 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 it's maybe going at 50 percent of the maximum metabolic stress if you will, of that engine, right? Whereas uh, Volkswagen, for example, as you said, 150 miles an hour, that car is maxed out, right? So that car, to go at that 50% of the maximum engine capacity, it has to go at 70 miles an hour. Now, the, the gasoline consumption at 70 miles an hour, the Volkswagen, that is the substrate, is a lot less than that of the Ferrari, which at 150 miles an hour is using what the what the Volkswagen would use if it could go at 150 miles an hour. Armando Mastrassi, a fellow Torontonian and inventor of the Exert training software, has really been able to capture what the top-end physiology of cyclists looks like, including the vast individual differences that you see. But I had a chance to talk with him about this lower end, more in that zone 2 or aerobic threshold range, and what he's seen with all of his work. You have a, a top pro versus a, an amateur, and they're both riding at, let's say, 85% of their, their LT, their mm -hmm. threshold power, mm -hmm. uh, or MLSS. Is it going to be the same on them? In terms of the, the physiological strain, the, the, is it working the same systems? Well, so from our standpoint, they will have a different amount of strain that's being applied to them. Typically, the, the, the athlete that has where their uh, lower threshold is lower, in other words, they've, they've, they've got um, their relative lower threshold versus their threshold is a lot lower, uh, at 85% of threshold, they're going to have more strain and they're going to be more impacted by that effort versus someone else who has a much higher uh, lower threshold, let's say the 85% was below their lower threshold, in fact, they may not, they may, they may have uh, much less strain now than they'll experience. Now, that's something that you see uh, changes with the level of the rider, meaning 
does a, a more amateur rider, is their, their lower threshold a, a much smaller percent? And you tend to see in higher level athletes that their lower threshold is a, a higher percent, or is it really individual? Mostly individual. Okay. Um, but for endurance trained athletes, uh, you, can, or you can say a couple of things. You can say that, A, they've, been, they've trained their lower threshold to be a lot higher. Um, but then you can also say they've also self-selected themselves in the process. So the only ones that are really successful at the highest levels will have the higher threat, lower right. threshold power. So it's not like they've necessarily trained it. They may have already, that only people that are successful in as, as, you know, competitive road racers will tend to have these lower, okay. higher lower threshold powers. So second question for you is let's, let's give you a scenario. So we have a, a pro and an amateur rider. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've measured their, their lower threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and the amateur rider's lower threshold is, let's say, 140 watts, mm-hmm. and the pro's lower threshold is 300 watts. Right. If they both went out and did a, a long ride at their, their lower threshold, mm-hmm. is it going to be the same for them in terms of strain, in terms of training effect, in terms of fatigue, or is it going to have a bigger impact on that, that top pro that they're putting out so much more power? In, in our modeling, we don't. So our modeling really characterizes lower threshold as lower threshold. So it's a certain uh, amount of strain relative to their number. So so the the if we assume that although their numbers are, are different, that the overall strain is the same, then then if they did the same amount of work, if they did if they did the same effort, it would have the same impact to their overall training. So at least that's the way we're currently modeling it. Is to say that. Two individuals that have the relative similar um, uh, characteristics, if they perform the same training relative to the lower threshold power, they're going to get the same amount of benefits. Okay. Now, what about effects on fatigue? Um, I'm also, you were talking about uh, maintaining carbohydrates. You were talking about the the fuel Mm -hmm. sources. The fact of the matter is, even though... um, it, you know, 300 watts might be the one person's lower threshold and, and 140 might be the, the other person's. So it, it's relatively the same. The fact of the matter is a calorie is a calorie. Mm-hmm. And that pro at 300 watts is burning a lot more fuel. Correct, yeah. So are you going to see, do you think, more of a depletion in them at that, that lower threshold? Exactly. You're right. So it really depends upon how much, how much fuel stores they have. Um, and how well they can preserve those fuel stores over the course of, of a long ride, right? So, um, granted, you know, the as far as my awareness is, you know, people's capacity to store glycogen is relatively the same across different uh, uh, individuals, um, uh, although there's there's still variation, um, and I think it's the amount of variation then that will de- that will determine how long a particular athlete would be able to sustain a particular. Uh, particular output power. So, you know, if someone has a, lo- uh, a lot lower, lower threshold, first thing, if they had the same capacity as some of these top athletes who have very huge carbohydrate stores, you would imagine to be very, that they would have very little effect on, uh, on, on their performance. But you're absolutely right. If you have a lot of power, you're going to need more uh, to be able to sustain that power over, over a longer duration rise. Okay. So I was wondering, I guess you haven't tested this, but it'd be interesting to see in your software, since you're you're seeing changes in that power duration curve, you're seeing changes in their numbers as they do a, a long ride. It'd be very very interesting to me to see if you took that pro at 300 watts, um, if their curve changed more than that amateur. 
at 140 if their numbers change just because of the huge metabolic flux? You know, that's, these are fantastic questions. And, you know, and uh, the reason why we haven't implemented the actual, what we call endurance energy, is what we characterize in the system, is the ability to kind of measure and quantify how well you can preserve your stores over, over longer rides, um, is because there's lots of variables involved, right? Uh, how, much, yeah. how much capacity you have, how well are you feeding during, during these rides, um, and you know, how, is it, uh, how are different people affected by it based upon their different characteristics? So first of all, measuring it, being able to depict it properly, uh, and be able to use that information and, uh, uh, for uh, uh, actively uh, prescribing training or, or using it to uh, uh, understand the athlete better. Um, all that information needs to be kind of properly put together. It's not a simple problem. Right. If you think about what's happening, it's we're seeing that how you're performing and your capacity to perform is changing over time, and we have to be we have to be able to map that out. It's a pretty profound um, concept overall. It's pretty profound that we can measure it kind of interactively within the first hour, right? That we can pinpoint how much power an athlete would have in the first within the first hour, let's just say. But being able to then pinpoint how much power they have after five hours would be. Uh, uh, would be a pretty tall order giving all the very all the various variables at all. Yeah. Now let's get back to Dr. Sanala. Basically what we're saying is at 50% that that pro engine is definitely using a lot more fuel. When you're talking about the mix of fats to carbohydrates at 50% are both both the pro and the amateur burning the same percent fats to carbohydrates or is that going to be different? They would be at the similar percentage to their maximal capacity to oxidize fats and carbohydrates, right? And, uh, but the elite athlete at the same percentage or relative intensity is oxidizing more fats, more carbohydrates, and, and more uh, amino acids, and synthesize and oxidizing lactate better in order to produce 300 watts. The, the, the one thing that it can also, in a way, tells us this is that this elite athlete can be five hours on the bike at 300 watts without major suffering or major stress, and which is the similar stress, if you will, or, or RPE, rate of perceived effort, that an amateur cyclist would be in 180. So like uh, in, in, in more layman's term, if you will, if you tell that elite athlete after, after five hours at 300 watts, without looking at mitochondrial function or anything, right? You can see the RPE, they will tell you, ah, this probably was like a six, right? And then you tell the, the amateur athlete that after five hours at 150 watts or 180, they might tell you it was a six as well. Yeah, so let's take that example if you're talking about that five-hour ride. So you have the pro, they're both doing it in their zone two um, on that five-zone model. Uh the the pro was averaging let's say 290 watts the amateur was a- averaging 180 watts at the end of that ride was the overall stress the same was the overall adaptation the same or is it is it going to be different and who is it if it is different who's it going to be harder on yeah i would say it's the same i would say it would be the same or, or very very similar and that's that's the stimulus that that athlete needs um that's what i when I, when I talk about and I started using the zone two, it was more like that. That exercise intensity right before you start switching to the more glycolytic fast twitch muscle fibers, uh, that's where you, you stress the mitochondria the most 
in order to have that stimulus for the highest by 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 um, by, um, by genesis possible. Uh, whether it's 180 watts for that amateur athlete or it is for the lead athlete, because if you have the lead athlete training 180 watts, there there that's a recovery ride. There's no stress enough to elicit um, mitochondrial biogenesis, for example, or different adaptations at the, at the uh, bioenergetics level, right? So, so that's what uh, it would be a very similar uh, exercise intensity and metabolic stress for both. So one of the things I found really interesting, when I was researching for my article, uh, I was looking into that and who it had a bigger impact on. And I'll, I'll give you my honest opinion. Going into it, I thought, well, the, the pros doing five hours at 300 watts, that's going to have a much bigger cost uh, to them, even though they are better trained than the the amateur riding at 180 watts. But I actually, at least the research I read, saw that it might actually be the opposite. You're saying it's the same. But one of the things that, that I found that was very interesting was looking at ROS production, reactive oxygen species. Uh, this is one of the things that causes damage. It's one of the things that causes inflammation after training. You do a lot of hard training or you do a big volume of training, you're going to produce ROS. And, and then your body needs to adapt. It needs to repair the damage caused by that. And I even found an interesting study that showed that too much ROS is what leads to overreaching and overtraining. And there was this one great study that, that shocked me that showed that in amateurs, less experienced cyclists, it was very easy for them to quickly overwhelm their antioxidant system and, and produce a lot of inflammation. Where they looked at pros, put them in a, a four-day, so this was, this was actually a study with pros, had them do a four-day top European stage race, and showed by the end of that stage race, there was actually a net reduction in ROS because their antioxidant system was so good. So what I was reading in some of this research is actually that that five-hour ride, even though the amateur's doing it at 180 watts, might actually be more stressful on the amateur than the 300-watt ride on the pro, because the the amateur might get overwhelmed with by the uh, the oxidative stress where the the pro wouldn't. Yeah, well, that that could be that's maybe something adjacent, right, or separate than the bioenergetics. And it's more like what's the, the toll, right? Um, right. I, I, I say that we, we still don't know for certain because um, we need to do a lot more research, in my opinion, right? I think that there are not many researchers out there. Uh, we, I, I have been using uh, or measuring uh, ROS in athletes since 2002 or 2003, I forgot. So it's been yeah, close to 20 years doing that uh, with, uh, with the um, uh, micro method uh, um, photometer where uh, I look at hydroperoxide, which is the most representative of uh, right. uh, ROS, probably. And um, one thing that we see very clearly that as, and I've done this in Grand Tours, I have done this in Volta, I have done this in the Tour de France, and as the stages progress, the, uh, the ROS of those cyclists uh, increase. And, uh, but that's it too. That's, that's because we're talking about the Vuelta or the Tour de France. We're looking at a Grand Tour Right. And the, uh, the metabolic stress on these guys is tremendous, right? Whereas I don't see that with, for example, doing the training load. 
the one thing that I've seen is that, and I, and, and I still don't probably don't know why, that's what we need to do more research, is that those elite athletes, uh, they used to have, they normally have lower rust levels. That's what I've seen over the years. The, the better ones have lower rust than the other ones, both during training, both at rest, and both also during like a, a grand tour. And this is data that, again, we haven't published it because there's so many data out there that we need to put, I need, I need to put together from 20 years that I didn't have the time. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I've been observing that for, for a long time. Um, the one thing that we also know is that these athletes, it's very possible that they have a higher, um, well, it's possible, it's, it's been shown that they have a higher antioxidant capacity, endogenous. This is another thing that we're looking also in, with metabolomics. We're looking also at the antioxidant um, uh, capacity of athletes, and absolutely we see that there are differences uh, in the uh, uh, antioxidant capacity of different athletes within the same group. So uh, it's very possible that definitely they're better, they have a better antioxidant capacity than other athletes of lower performance level. Is the antioxidant capacity something that allows them to be better athletes or does that come about because they've trained so much? Which comes first? Well, that's what, yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, that's what we don't know very well. I think that maybe it's a capacity that maybe they're, they're not as tasked, right, while they compete or train. Or maybe just they have a much higher recovery capacity, which is something that we see. So we're seeing, for example, and this is something that we're going to start publishing data because we're acquiring it already. We see something that is not in the books, or at least I haven't seen it in the literature, where we thought always that the elite athletes didn't use much protein, right? Because they use mostly fat and carbohydrates and protein didn't use much because they don't want to get catabolic. Well, in fact, we're seeing that they use more protein than uh, the other athletes but they also so they get more catabolic during the during the 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 the, the, the race for example <coughs> excuse me however we see also that their anabolic capacity and those amino acids in charge of anabolism they're also higher so this is very um uh really cool thing that we have observed uh because um i i, I was myself the first one who was like not you know like it was a shock to, to see that, right? So, so that's why there are a lot of things that are still we're trying to understand. But without a doubt, the uh, um, yeah, the, the, it's a good question that we're trying to understand whether it's like they, they go through a lower effort or less task, metabolically speaking, or simply they they go even about the same, but they have a much better recovery capacity. Which, in my opinion, I would be more inclined towards the the latter, right? That they might have a better recovery capacity in between sessions, which is something that, you know, uh, empirically, or, or we see that, you know, from the feedback from the athletes, you know, you see athletes who are, you know, after a stage race, they need four or five days to recover. And other ones within two days, they're ready to go. <laughs> and yeah. they tell you, hey, you know, like, I, I need to start doing training again, because I'm ready to go. And I'm not, I'm not going to name people, but uh, we, we see that, you know, with athletes, which shocks me, you know, because uh, those athletes, and that, that's what you see, wow, those athletes are amazing. They, they recover very well. Yeah. And uh, we're starting to see that at the cellular level. Because why in the world is guys telling me two days later that he's ready to go again? 
versus the other guy that I'm talking to and he said he's too tired and he went for a two hour ride and their legs hurt. Mm. And the other guy wants to do five hours. Now yeah. we're starting to see the signatures at the cellular level very well differentiated. And it's, it's, it's everything. It's just that they have a, a higher um, antioxidant capacity, a higher recovery capacity. During the race, they don't um, um, uh, suffer as much. Um, they, they, they also they synthesize glycogen. That's another thing that we're seeing. These athletes, they synthesize glycogen, glycogen much better and at a higher rate than others. And therefore, um, they, they, they don't lose so much glycogen during the race or, or in between days. And they can, they can fill it up the tank faster so they have less proteolysis, less catabolism, et cetera. So it's not, I don't think it's one door only. It's, it's everything that you can imagine, you know, right. in terms of bioenergetics, recovery, antioxidants, whatever they do, they're just do better. So this goes back to that that analogy that uh, I gave earlier of, of the car, where we, we talked about the engine, and certainly the, the pro engine is using a heck of a lot more fuel, but you also have the body of the car. And when I think about handling oxidative stress, when I think about recovery, everything else, to me, that's the what's the, the body that's around the engine. And that, that, forgive me all you amateurs out there, I'm an amateur, but it's, it's the difference between a, a bit of a beat-up old Volkswagen body versus a uh, Ferrari body. You can take that Ferrari out, rev it pretty hard, take it for a good ride, and it's still going to be purring the next day. You, you take that Volkswagen out and drive it at, uh, as you said, 150 miles an hour for a bit, you're going to be leaving pieces of that car on the road. Yeah, and to me it's more like the cooling system on that engine and the transmission and all of these other parts and systems are just more robust, more resilient, and that leads to a, a greater capacity and a greater uh uh, ability to recover and all of those systems come t into play when you're talking about this question here of what is, is it harder? Is it easier? Or is it the same at a relative power? Yeah, I would agree. Exactly. I would agree with uh, the car analogy. I think you guys are right. Uh, spot on that we don't need brands, right? But there may be like a, you know, lower category brand that, you know, that that car is not going to go so fast. Um, uh, you know, it's going to uh, have lower miles per gallon capacity maybe, or it's not as efficient, but especially in 150,000 miles, that car is going to start having problems because it's taking a toll on that car. Whereas the, the high level car can go way faster, accelerate faster, more horsepower, and can go to a million miles without major issues, for example. That you know, there's a lot of things that, as you said, you know, that they're more prepared. I think the, the take home, the, as I was doing all this research, like I said, I wrote an article on this a couple of years ago and uh, have been excited to talk to you about this topic for, for a long time because I think it's such a fascinating topic. But I remember what I got out of doing all that research for the article is we, we often focus on building the engine. What's the, the horsepower? How much watts can you put out? But you need a, a body to that car that is commensurate to the engine. 
you you could build a huge engine, but if the car can't handle it, it really doesn't matter. You you need to be working on both simultaneously. And you've talked about this before. We've had other guests that have talked about this before. I think that's where you're getting into your repeatability, your sustainability. You might be able to go out and do one good day, but can you do multiple good days, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing too is that also what's his nutrition, which is absolutely key, right? You, you know, are you feeling that engine properly? Um, maybe not. Then that's maybe why you're not recovering that well for the next day. Maybe you don't have enough glycogen, for example, and you cannot, therefore you lose your glycolytic capacity. Uh, versus if you were to eat correctly, you would have a better glycolytic capacity, right? Even, even at a high level, you need during the race, you know, I, I, like in 2008 or no, in 2006 or seven, forgot now, I, I, that's when I started to recommend in events over three hours at the high level of competition, I started to recommend 80 to hundred grams per hour of carbohydrates. Cause that's when I started doing all these uh, fighting carbohydrate oxidation rates. And I was clearly seeing that the elite athletes, uh, they oxidize tremendous amount of carbohydrates and tremendous amount of, of fat as well. But I was like, oh, these guys oxidize a lot of carbohydrates. Therefore, the guidelines back then were about 30 to 55 grams per hour. And I said, I, you know what? I, I just don't think this is enough. So I started to change to, from, to 80 to 100. And, and that was 2006, seven, And I was highly criticized by, by, by a lot of people because they said it was not possible, the, 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 you know, the, the human body can only, you know, like uh, assimilate 60 at the most, you know, and, and I was, I kept going. So I, I started, I, I, and I started applying that with great results, even at the Tour de France level. And, and the writers were telling you, very experienced writers are telling you for the first time in my life, now I'm seeing that I was not eating pr- properly, right? Now, we saw two years ago that the American College of Sports Medicine and I forgot another association, they got together. And, uh, and most of these people who were criticizing me uh, 13 years ago, they're telling now the new guidelines are 90 grams per hour, <laughs> you know? So on one hand, it's funny. And other time, on the other hand, it's like, okay, you know, these people were, were, were saying this was impossible. And now they're saying that, hey, we recommend to do this. So it is possible. Uh, but this is because there's a very high um, level of, of, of carbohydrate consumption for these athletes at those high levels of competition. So that's why you need a lot of fuel for that engine. As I mentioned, they have a much higher carbohydrate oxidation capacity. Therefore, also, you need to feed those, uh, those, those engines. You know, the, the, the fat oxidation is not so important because you can, you know, you, you have also adjusting to the mitochondria, especially in the slow twitch muscle fibers. They have what's called a fat droplet, uh, intramuscular, intramuscular triglycerides. They're right there um, next to the uh, mitochondria and about 20 to 25% possible of all the uh, fat oxidized during exercise comes from that fat droplet. Also comes obviously from uh, the interim, um, I mean the uh, subcutaneous uh, adipose tissue, but a big percentage. I mean a good a good percentage, 25 percent, is, is right there, um, which is another adaptation that they have that others don't have either. So um, it's it's about it's just producing fuel. If you don't mind, I'd like to 
sort of step back a little bit here, and we've talked about the differences. How does that inform the different ways that amateurs can should train based on our discussion today? They they have this smaller engine. It's perhaps in some ways it's hard to to do damage or do the constructive damage you want to see in these two different scenarios between pros and amateurs. So do you have recommendations there on what that means for an amateur? Before you answer that, uh, I just want to throw in, and, and this is as much a question as a, a statement. When I was doing my research for that article a couple of years ago, my thought was, well, of course, if a pro is doing a five-hour ride at 280 watts, that's a huge metabolic flux. That's a powerful ride. It's going to take time to recover, where the amateur is riding at pretty low wattage. It's, it's probably going to be easier. I, I almost feel like, based on our conversation, based on, on the research we talked about, it's almost, as you said, the, the pros have such an amazing ability to, to handle the, the ROS, to recover. It sounds like you're, it's almost the opposite, that the pro can go out and do that five-hour ride at 280 watts and do it the next day, where the amateur, even though they're, they're riding at 190, 180 watts, might actually mean more time to recover. How, how do you feel? Yeah, you're right. And, and this is another thing that I... I was also shocked when I was doing Ross uh, back in the days. Um, I would do before a, a maximal physiological test and after, as well as even in some stages I do at the beginning of stage and at the end. And I was I would assume right that at the end of the maximal physiological test and at the end of the stage they would have much higher rust in the blood, right? But actually they had about the same or even a little bit lower. So that was like, why in the world could be this? And uh, it is very possible that also their antioxidant machinery, it overreacts or because it's prepared and therefore neutralizes the excess of uh, rust and free radicals, right? So therefore, uh, that's why they might be able to recover very well for the next day. And maybe someone else, because um, this is another, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is another adjacent part of things of training, which is not about power output or about oxygen or about fat and carbohydrates. It's more about how do you deal with the byproducts, if you will, right? Or the, you know, the rust, the free radicals, and how do you improve the antioxidant capacity? Because we know too that the, the, the rust, they are necessary to elicit stimulus at the, at the, uh, at the cellular level. And uh, they're absolutely necessary. And we know that from science. If you suppress rust, you're not going to have a right adaptation. There are a few papers showing that already. And, and this, is, this is what it, you need to train your body. And the body has to adapt to that stress and, and has to produce or enhance the, the um, antioxidant capacity. Uh, one of the things that I did back in the days, you know, with the uh, for example, you know, with Garmin, the advantage that we had, and this is like 2009, uh, that, that most of the team was living in Girona. And uh, so I had a, a person, a coach there in Girona, living the whole time. And the riders, once a week, they would just go before training or on the way to training, they would just go to the, to the, the headquarters of the team or where the machine was there. And it's, it's a few small drops of blood where you can see the free radicals. And, and 
we, we would never supplement with any antioxidant whatsoever. We would just look at the free radical count. And if the free radicals were normal, they wouldn't supplement at all, right? When the free radicals were high, which usually was when the writer had been training uh, more than what he could assimilate or after like a, maybe a big race, that's where like, okay, we could supplement a little bit with antioxidants. But, but we, we, we really wanted, and I, up until this day, obviously, you know, we, we, even in the Tour de France, we don't supplement riders with antioxidants and we monitor free, for free radicals. And uh, yes, when the free radicals, they just go up, okay, that's when we, we see that, okay, they, they have lost the adaptation to deal with this, this, this super physiological effort, which is the, the Tour de France, and therefore they produce a lot more free radicals or ROS, then they became neutralized. So that's what I think it's indicated to supplement with antioxidants. Um, but, and maybe I'm just, <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I'm extending myself too, too much uh, about the recovery process. But yeah, I think that it is about improving their recovery capacity through the right training. Because if we, if we train someone that, that at a level that is too much, that, that athlete or that cyclist in particular, you know, cannot adapt, adapt very well for that intensity and, uh, and, and might be too much. This is why I always insist that the only way to, to really set the training zones of that athlete is to do that in the laboratory. In um, uh, an FTP in the field, it can give you a very, very estimate of your intensities, uh, but uh, it's not going to look at your metabolic flexibility, your um, lactic clearance capacity. It's not going to give you that information. So, but you know, and in fact, it can it can quote unquote fool you and say, oh, therefore your your FTP is this. Therefore, okay, let's do whatever 75 percent, or your zone two. It's going to be I don't know, uh, 200 watts or 150 to or 130 to 140 bits per minute. If you want to do heart rate, right? But we don't know if that's too much or too little, right? And the only way to see that is in the laboratory, right? And that's that that 2009 study, which I, I brought up right at the beginning of this. One of the things I got out of that is you saw in the so this was again comparing elite to to completely sedentary people, so the bit of the extremes. But you saw in the sedentary individuals uh, much more acid production. You saw them rely much more on anaerobic metabolism. Their ability to maintain homeostasis was just not there. And, and you, I think you see that as in lactate curves as well, where when you do a lactate test with a top pro, the, their curve is just a flat line until very high levels, where with, with less trained athletes even at low levels you start to see the lactates kick up yeah exactly and and now what what we're seeing because we're really advancing this this knowledge too and we will have the publications out, out there soon showing this uh that even within the same group uh i'm not i'm not talking about world tour versus uh you know like a domestic pros i'm talking within the same group of world tour we're seeing very important differences at the metabolic level, which is something that through these new techniques of metabolomics, we are seeing things that we have never been seen before. So we have a paper now showing showing the first proof of concept, and we have another paper coming up soon 
um, that it should it should it should show more information. And, and this is a line of research where an application because we're that we're doing that already with our team team at UAE. Uh, we are utilizing this to learn how our cyclists go through each stage and uh, how metabolically speaking they suffer or they 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 go through that and, and learn. So we, we're still learning, right? But uh, but but yeah, we have a these new uh, methodologies where we can see things that we have never been able to see before, you know, seeing 2000 parameters of an athlete, right? Uh, this amazing, you know, I, when I, we start to do this, I couldn't even <laughs> believe it myself. Like this we could be so much. And, and, and especially how, you know, uh, you know, how many differences we could see in one same group of world-class athletes, world tour level. Right. So, so we're going to be understanding this more and more over the years, for sure. Uh, but in the meantime, we can discriminate a lot already in the laboratory, looking at, as you said, uh, Trevor, the lactic clearance capacity of each rider is different, and it can be dramatically different from one to another one. And we can also see fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates, which is an indirect methodology to look for mitochondrial function and metabolic flexibility, as we published uh, two, three years ago. And, uh, but yeah, this test you can see them in the laboratory. And, uh, and I think that more and more laboratories are going to come out or more technologies. But I, I think that the FTP and, you know, and, 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 and different, uh, you know, similar parameters, they're okay. You know, there is something, but it can, it can really be far away from the reality in, in some instances. Jared Berg, the head physiologist at the CU Sports Center, addresses the question of the different engines that he sees in athletes. He works with everything from tour riders to people who just bought their first bike. In this clip, Jared talks about how this affects the training recommendation he gives them. Yeah, could you do justice giving one of those elite level cyclists, hey, I want you to do 80% of your training in zone two. Right, which is still a very polarized training approach, right? And then let's do some sweet spot, let's do some thresh sub threshold, you know, or in VO two max work, right? Could you do that athlete justice by saying that? I, I say no. That that is that would be poor consult, right? It's too much work for somebody with that cycling proficiency to always work at the top of their zone two for for that length or that amount of of their training, right? Where you could give that recreational athlete or that more sedentary individual, you know, give them 80% of their training in that zone two, and they're going to feel like it's too easy. You know, it's like they're hardly even getting a workout, right? It's, there's a big, there's a, there's a big um, gap there. And so often with those, with those elite level athletes, I will have them do, you know, 80% zone two and under, but within that 80%, I will break them up and say, hey, I want you to do, you know, 40% of it and sort of in that zone one area where you're, you're working on other things, just really trying to, you know, increase your, your fat burning and trying to maybe work out where your um, fat utilization is higher than your carbohydrate utilization and total calories, right? And let's use that sort of point. And then let's spend the other 40% trying to press what you can do with baseline lactate levels. And what about a novice rider? Then I would, I would be like, you know what, let's push, let's push 80% of that spot where we're known that we can move our um, sort of mitochondrial 
capacity and start encouraging those type one muscle fibers to build up more mitochondria, right? They're, um, they're going to make more gains by pushing higher volume right at the top of that zone two threshold. Okay. Yeah, it's very different, very different recommendations, right? Based, you know, for, for two different athletes. All right, let's get back to the show. Going back to the recommendations for, for amateurs here, because we know that their capacity to deal with Ross is so much lower than in pros, do you have any specific recommendations so that they aren't overwhelmed so easily? How do they um, limit the number of damaging rides and balance those things? Because high intensity rides are in that mix, uh, you know, high zone two rides that are right at that aerobic threshold, they start getting into uh, stressful situations there as well. So do you have any recommendations for, for dealing with that? It's funny to see that in many times you see category threes or category, category fours training at a much higher level than a tour de France cyclist. And I'm not seeing for a volume, I'm seeing about the metabolic stress. And this is in my opinion where the, the training program has to be rearranged according to that person. Uh, our first mistake is that, uh, or a first lack of information is like, yeah, we don't know what are the training zones for that person. We might be thinking that the person is training at zone two, but actually maybe it's a zone four or zone three. And therefore the metabolic task is much higher, right? So that's why in the laboratories are the best way to look into these parameters. But, but again, I think that it is more so the, the arrangement of the training program of an athlete. So, for example, we, we, we look at, you know, it, you know, the three weeks training and one week recovery that works really well within a week, even with the best cyclists in the world. We do one off, completely off day and maybe another recovery day. And then depending on the phase of the season, if you're in the winter or, or if you're in the midst of the season, you have different arrangements, right? So if you're in that, in those winter months, yeah, you do a lot of that zone two and uh, which could be maybe three to four days a week. And then uh, you touch also a little bit of that, that zone three and four, like the glycolytic capacity, which could be maybe uh, one day a week or two days a week. As the season gets closer, you might do less of the zone two and then do a little more high intensity, but also keep in mind that you're gonna have the high intensity from the races as well. And in the midst of the season, you need to do a lot of recovery training. Um, so it, it's all the, what the, 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 you know, the periodization of the athlete that is very important. Uh, but it's not, I, I mean, what I, I see the way many athletes train and, and right off the bat, you see them in, in, in November or December doing all out sprints, right. And, uh, intervals and 40, 20s. And, uh, and, and then you see that between November until March or April, they have only done five sessions of, of, of zone two, for example, that's a, in my opinion, uh, that's a, a receipt for disaster of that in that season uh, for overtraining, for not adapting correctly. And this is, and this is, if you look at the best cyclists in the world, they're doing the exact opposite. That's what I see. And this is again, going, going through that, the, the, the 80, 20, right. That polarized training, that may be a way 
if you will, to without many numbers and, and talking about metabolism and about adaptations, you, I think that that 80-20 polarized training, I think a lot of people understand those concepts, and, and, and I think that's a very good concept, in my opinion. And that study that looked at amateurs versus pros in terms of oxidative stress, two of the, the key points that are brought up were, one, it's very easy with more amateur riders to overwhelm that system and lead them into overreaching or overtraining. Uh, the other thing it pointed out was at lower intensity, it, it seems that it's at lower intensities that you really improve your antioxidant system. Pros have that well-developed, so they can handle actually more intensity. That's why they can hop into a three-week stage race and survive, where it almost sounds like it's saying with, with amateurs, you need more of that lower intensity to build that antioxidant system so that you, you don't overwhelm your body. I was not aware about the intensity, so thanks for bringing that out, about the lower intensity increase in that antioxidant capacity. But yeah, this is kind of what we believe that. that and call me old school if you, if you want to, but the, the base training, right, uh, that's, that's key. And, and, and now we're seeing this uh, not just because, you know, we're doing these things that we, we saw from people in the, from the 80s, but uh, we, we're seeing that at the metabolic level with the, with the highest techniques and methodologies possible with metabolomics, with transcriptomics. We're seeing this with the muscle biopsies, right? We, we, we're confirming all these uh, hypotheses or theories, right? That, yeah, that, that lower intensity and that, that 80-20 model, it's, it's definitely better than just go out there and do sprints and sprints and sprints, you know? Uh, but that's it too. I, in my opinion, too, it comes back to how the business of training and coaching is. In, in my opinion, this is a very important point because if you are coach that um, just wants to have as many assets as possible, and 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 this is unfortunately what many coaches are are doing. Um, instead of spending time with your athlete, like uh, informing about energy systems, informing about how that athlete needs to plan not just the next month or two, but the next year or two years and how to become a better athlete. And, um, and, 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 the, and they, the, the coach is there to, to hold the hand of that athlete every day and, and say, how's your day going and, and how's your recovery? Okay, we can change a little some things here and there. In my opinion that many coaches, they, 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 they don't care much about these concepts or they don't, they don't want to know or, or, or they don't know. Uh, because it's easier to, to write a program super complicated that you need to do today X amount of sprints at 40-20 and X seconds of recovery, and the next day you have to do similar things. And you literally, you need to bring a, a sheet of paper with you, right, to know or your phone and pull out and, and see how my training is, and it, which is extremely complicated, uh, extremely full of uh, sprints and accelerations and, and, and changes of rhythm and and 4020s, which you, you can't remember, but it might look like that coach is very smart because it's coming up with all this super elaborated training. As opposed to the coach who understands these concepts and, uh, and, and, and prepares that athlete for the long term and tells that athlete, hey, for the next three months, this is what you're going to be doing. You know, just uh, four days a week, you're going to do three to four hours, for example, and zone two. One day a week, you're going to do you know, maybe zone four, and then the other two days, easy. So 
because of how the business of coaching is, and, and, and this is where the cyclists, and this is my only opinion, huh? the cyclists are the ones who say, wait a minute, am I going to pay you $300 a month to tell me that I have to do four days for the next three months, four days a week, three to five hours, or two to three hours at zone two, and only one day at zone four? Or, 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 you know what I mean? As opposed to, oh, okay, right. I pay you every month $300, but you gave me a super complex and, and uh, elaborated system where, where I need to even bring with it with me because it's 40, 20 intervals, et cetera. You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm explaining myself well, but I think that the coaching business, in a way, it's, it's, uh, it's throwing a wrench into many of these concepts. Yeah. We've talked about that before, that sometimes coaches feel a pressure to come up with an overly complex plan so they can justify why they're they're being paid. Where you know, my personal bias, and sounds like you're on the same place, is, is the art of coaching is in the interaction with the athlete. It's in the conversations. It's in the hearing what's going on with them and adjusting. It's not the complexity of the workout you give them. I agree. Yeah, and that's where you see many coaches, they, they don't have that interaction with the athlete. Like, I, I working with world-class cyclists that they've been winning big races this year, for example, and last year, you know, it's more the interaction. It's just like they have a structure and wouldn't do crazy things of training things. No, it's more the interaction. It's very structured, but very basic training. And, uh, and, and they understand it in the first place and they know the goals and they know what this training is going to do to their mitochondria. For example, it's, from an academic level, I like to explain that, but it's more of a day-to-day interaction, right? How do you feel today? I'm like, ah, mm, I didn't have a lecture today. Okay, then we cancel tomorrow's training. Let's, let's uh, you had, for example, another four hours, or maybe you have a few intervals to do. No, let's do two hours easy. And then how do you feel in today? Uh, you know, oh, today I feel much better. You know, I remember, okay, then, then let's resume the next. Let's substitute the training that you had for the other day. Let's, let's plug it in back in you know, today's or whatever, right? I think that that's, that's, that's the key then rather than just do cyber coaching and having 40 athletes, you know, not knowing who, you know, I mean, giving them the same copy and paste program, very elaborated and, and not having that, that human touch, I think. I think that the system eventually will go back to where it was. That's my humble opinion. We've talked a lot about this concept of Zone 2, or Lawn Aerobic Endurance Training, from a physiological and theoretical standpoint. But let's hear from Brent Bookwalter about the more practical side of this type of training, including his opinion of whether it's different for riders like him, and how it changes from base to race season. I'd say it is a little different, and I, I would say the best way I could explain that is sort of like what I'm feeling this time of year, and that's being a less trained. Um, you know, I came came off a late season injury, came off the period of off season, some inactivity, some cross training. And, you know, now I'm getting back on the bike and I'm starting to, to do some lower zone work. And, um, you know, the, the wattage, the outputs are down from what I would do in peak form in the season. But even at that decreased percentage, I still feel it, it takes a little bit different toll on the body. And I, I wouldn't say that scale is like, is linear. I would say it's even individual. You know, I would say some people, some some athletes would um would would feel the same way you know if they're doing 60 minutes at 65 percent of their max and that you know max is changing throughout the year they're going to feel like the same accumulated fatigue um on that sliding scale but 
you know, I think for, I think for other people, they, the, the fatigue or the net stress seems higher and when you're not as fit. And I, I know personally, I feel that, but I look at some of my teammates and I, I feel like that's, that phenomenon doesn't exist in them. So yeah, I would chalk that up to, you know, I guess individualized sort of specificity of, of training and everyone being a little different, but I would definitely be hesitant to say that it's matter of factly the same if you're working at a percentage, no matter who you are. Right. So that begs the question. Uh, we certainly, our listeners and our readers are always wondering what the pros are doing. Um, mm-hmm. And I know a lot of the pros, or pros spend a lot of time training in that zone one or zone two. But for them, that's you know, anywhere from 200 watts up to 300 watts. So there, there, there's still a big energetic flux there. Um, should sure. amateur riders who have a much, much lower zone one, zone two, should they be spending as much time down in those zones where, I guess my question is, at 100 watts, are they getting the same benefits or do they necessarily need to to train a little harder until they can get the, the same sort of energetic flux? Uh, I hope that makes sense. Personally, I think that's sort of an issue of, again, like individual management. Like if it's if this is an amateur rider that has high flexibility in his daily schedule um, and is, you know, maybe their, quote, day job, they're doing a, you know, able to do it, you know, a lot of volume, a lot of hours. The pro approach is, is conducive, but if, if it's a person with less time and less to work with to begin with, I think um, it's great to, to push that, like you said, essentially train a little harder. And I guess uh, another way to ask this whole question is that when you're on, on peak form mm-hmm. and you're going out and you're doing that, that zone two ride or aerobic threshold ride or tempo ride or whatever you want to call it, um, mm-hmm. even though it's, it's a, a lower percentage of your max, do you find when you're, you're up at that high two hundreds or, or low three hundreds that it's still a tough ride? Do you feel that? Or are you sitting there going, no, that was just a 65%. It, it didn't affect. Yeah. You. It's a strange phenomena that I don't know if it's strange, but that, that's something that I feel like, um, you know, I adapt to and, um, it's like another example of like laying down those really fine layers year after year after year after year. Like if I look at, if I look, if I picked one season from seven years ago, it would like, you know, fatigue me or stress me just as much when I'm really fit as when I wasn't. But I feel like as I look back on the years and see my depth increase as a rider, it doesn't affect me as much. You often hear guys talk about doing grand tours and coming out with another gear, um, that sort of thing. I think that's sort of like a little bit of a, a testament to that depth where you can you can do that zone two, zone three stuff, be on the gas a lot more and and in peak form and not really feel like it's um you know denting the tank or or taking as much energy as it would when you're not as fit. Okay, time for our one minute take homes. Back to Dr. San Milan. Dr. San Milan, I don't know if you remember our uh, usual closing statements, but uh, we'll give it to you now. We give each guest 60 seconds to sort of encapsulate everything that we've talked about in the episode. So you're on the clock. We're talking about the metabolic costs of zone two. What are your take-home messages? Well, my take-home messages are that, say like, yeah, two, two athletes when they train at a zone two, uh, it doesn't matter if you're elite athletes or if you're an amateur athlete, you have a very similar metabolic cost uh, that is going to elicit the right adaptations. 
both to improve fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates, mitochondrial function, antioxidant capacity, and that it is very important to establish where those training intensities are because if we don't establish them correctly, you and I might, but you might not be training at the right zone and then you might elicit maybe an excessive metabolic task to your body. Then it's very important to have a, a informed periodization on how you're going to plan the training, not just this month or next month, but how is the next four blocks or I mean four months are going to be uh, once the season starts during the season and the programming is very important. And also the nutrition is absolutely key to put it all together as well. This is one of the most interesting questions in, in endurance sports training to me. It's just this, when you think about it with a, a pro doing 290 watts in their zone two and, and a more amateur athlete doing 180 watts, you just think it's got to be completely different. It's got to be harder on the pro. But as Dr. Samalan said, metabolically, it's it's the same. So when you're talking about the engine, it's it kind of is the same, even though the pro's engine is consuming more fuel. But uh, I kind of like that analogy of the car because the other factor is what is the car that that engine is inside, and how well can it handle the the horsepowers that you're you're putting out. And what it seems like is in the pro. That's a really well-built car that can handle it and can handle it day after day after day. And, and you have to consider that, not just the what's, what's the wattage. Well, yeah, to, to continue with that analogy that helps bring this all together, I think it's worth understanding or, or considering the, the person who takes the Honda Civic and tunes up the engine but doesn't change out the struts or the suspension or some of these other things and that car might go fast for a little while and can go fast for a little while but it soon starts to run into trouble because there's not a whole lot of balance between the engine and the chassis and the other supporting systems that make the whole package go so when you're training if you're an amateur of, of course we're are, we're directing our messages here today, mostly to to the amateur, even though we've talked a lot about pros, it's about that balance of bringing up all the systems simultaneously so that you're not overwhelming one with the other. So the engine does, doesn't just, it doesn't sit in a, in a vacuum. You need all the other supporting systems to come along with it to, to help it, to help you maximize what you can get out of that engine and make it sustainable. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you, Dr. San Milan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I know you've had a, a rough last month with the team and the quarantine and all of that. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really a, always a pleasure to be uh, to be back with uh, you guys. Yeah, you guys are doing a great job with this podcast, which is it's, it's sending a great message to the community. It's very informative. I think it's great that you guys have different guests uh, that some might have the same opinion. Some others have different opinions, but it's, it's a very good service that you guys do to the cycling community uh, because you guys are bringing your expertise, other people's expertise and discussing that in an open forum uh, where people are very well informed. And I, I appreciate that because it's a great service for the cycling community. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. 
Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or call 719-800-2112 and leave us a voicemail. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Dr. Inigo San Milan, Dr. Steven Seiler, Jared Berg, Brent Bookwalter, Armando Mastracci, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.